Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here at The Next Reel, we've been passionately discussing movies week after week since 2011. That's a lot of movies and a lot of conversation. Sure is, Pete. And to be honest, it's a lot of work, too. But it's work that we love. If you've been enjoying our show, we'd like to remind you that there are ways to support us, even if you're not able to become a member just yet. You might have heard us talk about our new watch page, where we've listed every movie that we've talked about paired with Amazon or Apple links to rent or buy the movie. Now we'd like to introduce you to our Originals page. Let's take a trip down memory lane, Andy. Do you remember what the first film we discussed on The Next Reel was that was an adaptation? Uh, well, let's see. It wasn't, obviously, our Indiana Jones series, because those were all original. Uh, then we did Charlie Kaufman. Uh, oh, of course, it was Adaptation uh, from Susan Orlean's Orchid Thief. Exactly. We have covered quite a few adaptations over the years, and now we're providing a way for our listeners to delve into the original source material. That's right. Just head over to thenextreel.com slash originals, and you can see the list of all the adaptations that we have discussed. From our David Fincher series, featuring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. To our Paranoia trilogy with The Parallax View and All the President's Men. We have covered a variety of adaptations. Those were some great discussions, especially Fight Club. And let's not forget our baseball series with The Natural and Field of Dreams, adapted from Shoeless Joe. And Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking. So many memorable conversations. Absolutely. And you know what's exciting? Each purchase you make through our links doesn't cost you any extra, but a percentage goes to support the next reel in our family of shows. You can support us while diving deeper into these fantastic stories, whether it's the paper, audiobook, or Kindle version. We've also included plays and movies. If they were the source, we've put it on there. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals, support the next reel, and get your next great read today. I'm off to reread Fight Club. Now, where did I put my Kindle? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I think the big challenge with this particular show is that I don't have a very good Swedish accent. The thing about speaking in Swedish is you have to know how to properly use your umlauts. That's it's very, it's very that's important. probably true. It's more of a ooh, ooh sound. I'm going to let you be the one to try that on the air rather it's than me. It was really umlaut. fantastic listening um, to you do that. Yeah, umlaut. <laughs> Something like that. I think I've got, I think I've, I mean, I think if anything, that may be the one thing I can hang my hat on for my Swedish is my umlaut. Is your umlaut. Well, mm. you're, you're better than I. Umlaut. You have to get just to that point where you're about to kick in your gag reflex. I think that's the. Think <laughs> is, that, is that what it takes? I think that's what it takes. <laughs> There's a hint of gag reflex <laughs> that you got to make sure you throw in there in order to really get it working right. <laughs> I, we're, you know, how much did you love this movie? Um, I really loved the movie. I thought it was uh, fantastic. And that's coming from a person who's, you know, read the trilogy and watched the Swedish trilogy. I think that um, they just, the, the, the whole team uh, from top down, bottom up, whichever way you want to look at it, really crafted a film that just, uh, I mean, set out exactly what they were um, aiming to do. And uh, I loved it. We are, of course, talking about uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the 2011 revisioning of the 2009 hit film based on the earlier 2000s book by <laughs> Not the Same Name by Stieg Larsson. From what, from what was that, 2008? 2008, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Oh, just... uh, so I think the first question, and, and I'm really interested in your position on this, uh, because uh, so the, the director of the, the Swedish uh, film, mm. uh, whose name is not easy to uh, uh, pronounce, Niels Arden Oplov. That's pretty good. <laughs> There is, in fact, no. Well, there probably is an umlaut in his name. I, <laughs> Niels Niels Arden Oplev uh, is on the record as saying that this movie should not have been made. This the you know girl with the dragon tattoo. Uh, prime <laughs> should not have been made. It was only released a couple of years ago. What's your take on uh, should should this movie have been made? The Fincher version. Well, yeah, because his was released uh, in the U.S. in March 2010. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, all three of the, his, well, 
not his. He only directed the first. I think someone else directed the second and third films. But they were all released in the U.S. in 2010 at the same time that Scott Rudin um, over at uh, Columbia Pictures was pushing to get the uh, English version made, which they started, uh, you know, he got David Fincher on board in April 2010. Um, you know, it. I found it very strange when I first heard that they were doing it. Um, I mean, remakes have been made, you know, countless times. I mean, you know, all the way back through the history of film. It's it's a very popular thing to do. The um, The fact that it was made a year after the previous one, you know, I was really... I was really skeptical that um, um, that it was going to do anything different than the previous one did. I didn't really see a reason for it, especially since the original original was in Swedish. The story was a Swedish story that took place in Sweden. I thought they did a fantastic job with the films the first go around. I didn't really see why we had to kind of redo them. Now, that being said, David Fincher um, is my favorite director. And, you know, I had to give him a little credit for trying to take on that task of making a uh, remake, basically, like within within uh, two years from when the original came out. And um, it's, you such know, a, it, it's such a uh, such an American thing to do. It is. Doesn't, <laughs> really? I mean, isn't it? It's you know, just, I, I, this <laughs> is such a showcase of American sort of Hollywood studio ego. Yeah. To, to do this with bigger, arguably bigger global names and uh, and attaching a guy like Fincher to it, who is on a string of such successes. It's such a, I mean, you know, like, it, it, you know what else it is? I, I think it's almost a showcase of um, uh, protecting us from our own sort of anti-intellectual uh, um celebration of anti-intellectualism as if we are, we're not capable of enjoying a film with subtitles. Well, yeah, I think that's very much it. I mean, the ego thing I think has a lot to do with it. You know, unfortunately I think the vast um, masses of America are probably not running out to watch any movie in that has subtitles. Right. And that's, uh, that's sad. That should be it sad. Is. We should be sad about that. We should be sad about that. Um, it's uh, and and for whatever reason, it has whether whether we've actually created that ourselves by the Hollywood system pushing um, so many American and English language films on us constantly. I mean, they make so many. Our theaters are just constantly full of them, whether right. they're good or not. The and most uh, of the time, you don't even know. Most of the time, you don't even know that this was based on a on a film that was that the the movie you're watching was based on a foreign film, some Indian film, some German film. You don't even know uh, that it was based on something else. Yeah, I would be. Uh, I think back to to my favorites like uh, La Femme Nikita. Yeah, uh, terrific film. I was actually surprised Run Lola Run wasn't made into a uh, the German film Run Lola Run wasn't <laughs> yeah. made into a a terrific you know big blockbuster English movie. Well, I think film. it's I think it says a lot that the only Oscar that uh, Martin Scorsese has won 
um, in all of the very original and unique films that he's made over his career has been a remake of a, uh, you know, I can't remember if it was a Japanese or Hong Kong, I think it was a Hong Kong film um, for The Departed. You right. know, that was a remake that he did uh, fantastically. Which was and, fantastic. You know, that was a great film. But, you, you know, I'd be, I'd be um, hard-pressed to find, you know, even, you know, a handful of people you know, if I just walked around my neighborhood going door to door, polling people who had seen The Departed versus who had seen the original, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I almost would guarantee I wouldn't find a single one or maybe one or two who had seen the actual, you know, original film that that had been based on. Right. Now, that yeah. said, I feel like, uh, you know, there we have a, a great uh, sort of the same situation with The Departed that we have here with Dragon Tattoo, which is... Uh, a, a fantastic property in Stieg Larsson's novel in the hands of a terrifically talented team. Yeah. Uh, with Fincher and, and the folks that, that came together to make this movie. Uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit, I mean, we, this is, our show has not been on that long, but it's, I feel a little bit out of sorts talking about a movie that is currently in theaters. Yeah. Because only, only just, you know, Right. I mean, I've only I've only seen it once. Right. Right. Um, You know, by the time people uh, are are listening to this, the movie will have been out for several weeks. But um, but it is still very new and and we're still sort of wrapping our heads around. And I'm going to I definitely want to see it again um, in in theaters. It was it was a terrific film. But I want to start by what uh, you know, what really stands out to you is as what this movie does. Right. what what strikes you as as particularly powerful in the Fincher version? Well, I, I think in order to, um, I, I guess we can talk about that without talking too much about the Swedish version. Um, yeah, I'm really. I'm str- I, I, I was struggling with that. In a sense, in a sense, you almost have to, you know, kind of compare the two if you're going to talk about what what his does right. Um, well, you know, first you you almost need to compare it to to the book yeah uh, and it, i think i think in both cases um both sets of filmmakers actually managed to really pull out um the right bits and and kind of leave them aside when they made the film uh the film versions um and and they're definitely different you know both versions you know left some things in that the other one didn't and things like that but they both tell a solid tale, and um, I think audiences will end up being pleased with both of them. The um, the interesting thing about the Fincher version, um, which you know I probably should attribute to Stephen Zalian, who who wrote the wrote screenplay. The script, sure. And I mean, he's a fantastic screenwriter. Who I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, is probably having you know one of his best years, having written this and Moneyball. In the same year, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's gonna. Uh, you'll be hearing a little bit of his name um, come award season. But um, the thing that I really liked about this film that um, the the previous the Swedish version didn't um, do quite as much. This film um, wasn't afraid to pull little bits from the second and well not really the third book but you know from the second book 
kind of drop little bits in from, you know, other, you know, things that happen All later. Right. I, I need to, I need to check, you need to check me on that then, because I have not read the second or third book. So this is a spoiler show for me and I'm totally okay with that. What, what did they, not, what did they bring huge. in? Are we well, talking about character stuff or? Uh... Yeah, it's just little things. But I think one thing that um, was completely left by the wayside in the first movie, the Swedish movie, was um, Lisbeth Salander's relationship with her previous, um, uh, what's the role called? The guy who watches over her. Oh, yeah. Her, she was his... Well, they, she was his she ward. Was his ward, and he was her, uh, uh, not, <laughs> I'm to say parole officer, but that's not it. She yeah, was, no, she was her... a ward of the state, and he was her... Legal, like her legal guardian. Yeah, right? her guardian. Guardian. Yeah, her guardian. That's what it is. Her, her first legal guardian, Holger who, Palmgren. Who had the, the stroke. Who has the stroke. Um, we actually see, you know, the scene where she comes over and finds him collapsed. Right. Um, on the floor. Now, actually, that does take place in the first book, but it's kind of all told um, in kind of flashback style. We don't really see it happening. It's just kind of told to us. Um, now we actually get to see that. In the, that, in the second book, you actually go through that. Well, in the second book, in the second book, no, in the, um, she actually kind of starts visiting him and playing chess with him. And, you know, she finds out from um, her and this is in the book. It's not in either film. Um, she finds out from her boss, um, Armonsky, mm -hmm. who happens to be very good friends with Holger Palmgren and kind of helped set this whole thing up. Right. Um, um, she finds out from Armonsky. Um, she had thought after his stroke, she'd thought that he died. And she kind of, you know, left that part of her life behind her, um, you know, especially once she kind of got stuck with Niels Bierman, um, the evil man. Right. Um, she, um, so she, Armonsky tells her, you know, you haven't even gone to visit him. And so she starts going and visiting him and playing chess with him and kind of helping him, um, rehabilitate. Get, yeah. Rehabilitate. And, um, that's something that they, um, they actually show that relationship as, as she comes back at the end and she's talking to him and saying, you know, I found somebody, I found a new friend and just all that wonderful stuff, which was just great to see. And as I recall, and now I, my, my memory of the books may be spotty. I mean, it's all kind of, I've watched all three Swedish films and then I read all three books and then I watched this. So yeah. I may be, I may be wrong actually, but as I recall, there's none of that Palmgren interaction in the first Swedish film. Okay. I, I actually can't. I haven't seen all of the Swedish. I only started watching the Swedish film today, and I'm only uh, I'm not quite through it. Gotcha. Uh, um, one thing that the Swedish film does keep in it that the uh, American one didn't was um, uh, Lisbeth's relationship with her mother. And in the American film... Her mother's not even a, a mention. Yeah, she's not even brought up. In fact, the whole, all of the flashbacks that we see in the Swedish film to um, Lisbeth's childhood when she sets her father on fire right. um, are completely left by the wayside in this. We only have 
uh, one when um, Mikhail Bloomquist, uh, Daniel Craig, is talking to Armansky and trying to find out, you know, who this person is. And he said, you know, she's had a rough life. Um, let's just let her be. And that's kind of just a hint. And then there's the bed scene when, you know, they're kind of talking toward the end and right. and he's trying to find out, you know, what happened to her and she's why she's a ward of the state. She says, I, I uh, you know, tried setting my father on fire. That was a fantastic uh, pillow talk. Yeah, you know, that's, it is. It's, it's really, you can see uh, why there was so much love between them. Right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I'm also, just as an aside, I'm very interested in the fact that they left out so much of Armansky's character uh, in the film as well, in the, the Fincher film. Uh, Armansky played by uh, Goran Viznik. Viznich? something he was uh is he's been in a bunch of stuff but his most uh, uh i i think has probably uh, any significant following thanks to his longtime run in er um uh, he's a fantastic actor and and he really is uh he gets a few headshot uh scenes in this film uh gets maybe three minutes of screen time uh, which i think is a shame mm-hmm uh, because yeah, that that's really a character a that that's a character that serves a a definite role for uh, in the book in particular as a as a guide uh, as a as sort of um, lighthouse character for uh, Lizbeth Salander and and I, I you know I think it's a testament to the the solid sort of foundation of the film that in fact they were able to to minimize the Armansky character in the film as much as they did and not make it feel like a gaping development hole. Right, right. He he's a tricky character to uh, to do a lot with. I mean, obviously, he's somebody who's trusted Lizbeth um, more than anyone else has, and uh, given her, you know, a, a career essentially. Trusted her, and and I think had deep affection for her, like romantic affection for her in the book, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's there's definitely some hint of that. I mean. And it's never pursued him to her. And um, I, because of that, it's like, it's almost like, you know, uh, you know, unrequited love sort of thing. But at the same time, you know, he's um, he's married and it really is just more just him almost just wanting to just take care of her and just kind of protect her from things. It's It's one of those very sort of fragile paternal romantic relationships. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting relationship, and it's yeah, it's not pursued at all in the Swedish films. And his role is very even in the second. Interesting to see if there's more of him um, in in the uh, inevitable second and third American versions that we'll be following soon. Well, I'm sure. Although in everything I've been looking for, and this is I guess sort of an aside, I have not seen any hint that there is anyone actually working on the second or third film and certainly fincher's name is not attached to it the next five films that he has in production are not this my understanding is that he has not committed to doing the other movies um i think columbia pictures has money which i'm sure it will because the buzz is huge Huge. and, and the reviews are very positive um i'm sure it'll make a lot of money and i'm sure they will make um the entire trilogy I believe that they got Daniel Craig and Rooney Monsters. Uh, David Fincher, though, I think only committed to the first one. And I think his reaction was, well, we'll see how things go. And 
you know, he was kind of like maybe willing to look at it if, you know, if he uh, felt like it, there was more that he wanted to do with it. Mm. Uh, this was a, just an interesting statistic, just talking about the Swedish film um, a little bit longer. It was released in early 2009, and you know the information I found on the internet whenever somebody wrote it, it is the most viewed Swedish film ever. Um, in Sweden, the total admissions, um, as in just people going in to watch it, it's above a million people, and that's in a country with you know not quite 10 million people. So that's like just over 10% of the population seen it. Wow. Um, and you know, I was trying to figure out what that really meant. Um, statistic-wise, and I was, and so I was looking at the U.S. and taking our population, which is about you know three hundred seven million um, in two thousand nine. Um, if ten percent of our population had seen a movie, that's like you know thirty point seven million people. Right. Um, and then if you took an average ticket price, say ten dollars a ticket. Um, you know, if you took all the different prices across the country and averaged out to ten dollars a ticket, that means a movie that would have to, you know, have about you know thirty million people. So it'd have to make about, again, about three hundred million dollars um, just in the U.S. box office, and that puts it almost up there in like the top twenty U.S. films, um, money maker, money making films of all time, um, number. You know, what number one is Avatar, which made seven hundred sixty million dollars, which is quite a quite a chunk of change, and I'm sure a lot of that was from 3D um, ticket boosts. Right. But um, number twenty, Lord of the Rings, that just in the U.S. that made three hundred forty-two million dollars. So if you take the Lord of the, Lord of the Rings, um, the two, film, yeah. the two towers, and you look at how much money that made uh, and how popular it was in our country. And you you take that and you put it in Sweden. That's how popular this film was in Sweden. Uh, you know, but you actually make a good point. Like, uh, you know, what is the what is the average cost of the ticket in Sweden? Yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, they don't give me ticket prices in Sweden or how much money it made in Sweden. Yeah. All they have all they have is the number of people, the total admissions who had who had gone to see it. So, so it's we um, we're sort of I, I see what you're what you're doing is trying to find an apples to apples comparison, but it almost seems to me like the insinuation is that it is this this movie. It would be difficult to make a parallel that's so successful if if you know if we were to actually break out ticket prices i think you're right that 3d ticket sales of avatar I, I you know i'd be surprised if we had hit even close to you know 10 15 of the population that mm -hmm. saw that movie yeah yeah i i think that's fascinating yeah i mean that's a really popular film that's so, huge yeah and then i i didn't see any statistics about um how uh, many people in the u.s saw it but i guarantee it's nowhere near that number yeah and and most of them have seen it on Netflix, and so it's not even the same sort of uh, money maker. Yeah, right. Um, except you know, it's based on a trilogy which is sold. You know, I don't think I got the statistics for the book, but it's. I mean, it's been translated in you know dozens of languages, and it's right. you know just the international bestseller sold all across the country, uh, all across the country, all across the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it's you know it's a hugely popular uh, trilogy. 
It's and, uh, uh, yeah. oh, here it is. It's 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 sold. Um, just in the U.S., the book has sold 15 million copies. Wow. So yeah. It's uh okay. So we we haven't talked about what the movie is about, but and and I don't I don't know necessarily that we are capable of doing a simple synopsis. Uh, but I think it's it, it's interesting. Uh, there, there was an interesting parallel I read that got me thinking uh, that that David Fincher had had been quoted in one of his uh, you know one of his reviews. He had said that you know I, I I think it was about the music actually. It was it was not actually David Fincher. No, it was it was Trent Reznor in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, who was talking about working with David Fincher, saying, you know, it's 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 given him the freedom to actually um, uh, work with somebody who doesn't uh, attempt in any way to dumb down his material for his audience. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and largely you can say the same about Trent Reznor and his in in his work, uh, you know, and, and through Nine Inch Nails and then his work through, uh, you know, his his the music that he creates and has created for David Fincher with the social network. Um, and, and again, with the dragon tattoo is, is complex and you know fascinating to listen to it and stands so well on its own, um, you know, as its own piece of work that, that almost merits its own discussion. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. He, he and Atticus Ross, yeah. um, between the two of them really have done some very interesting stuff music wise. I mean, I think social network, um, the, the score is just um, amazing. I know it's kind of um, it's kind of a love it or hate it type of yeah. type of music, but um, I'm definitely in the love it crowd. And yeah. um, it, it, well, and and so you know, get to get back to the to the the book. Uh, what Steve Larson has created is not a simple text, uh, and I think that's charitable. And yeah, it's it is a very hard story to read, and hence watch. And and um, you know, I, I learned this about Stieg Larsson as I was reading about this. You know, when he was a teenager, he actually witnessed a gang rape of a young girl, and um, who was like also a teenager, I think fourteen, and um, he didn't do anything about it, and he has never forgiven himself for not helping, and. The girl's name, who was raped, happened to be Lizbeth, and he kind of took that um, idea and 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 created this character uh, from that, and um, always from there on, really started trying to fight against anything that was um, um, anti-Semitic or you know um, uh, was very. Um, you know, violence toward women, anti-racist, you know, he just, he was really um, trying to make things right. And I think that that uh, stemmed from that moment in his life. And it really did make it, it, it really does come through in the book. And it makes it something that is very, um, that is very challenging to, to look at. Yes, on the surface, it is kind of just a a murder mystery story. You know, we have an investigative journalist here who, along with this, this um, really fascinating computer hacker character, kind of team up to try to solve this, you know, 40-year-old murder mystery, um, which is, it's a very interesting story in its own right. But at the same time, you're really starting to look at 
all these other things that, you know, um, that he is putting up there in the forefront for people to pay attention to violence against women. Um, you know, the, you know, corruption of, of businesses and, uh, corporations, um, this, you know, political evils of the world, like the Nazism that still kind of festers in, uh, in the society and just these, these, these hatreds that people have. And it's, it, I think that is why one of the reasons why the, um, the series has become so popular is because there's a lot more to it than just a simple murder mystery. I, I think I think you're spot on, and one of the one of the things I, I really love, uh, if you you know, as much as I say this is not a simple story, it's really not. The layers upon layers of complexities that that Larson added to the tale itself uh, are really what make it such kind of rich fodder for discussion. But you know, Roger Ebert actually, in his own review, had had you know, really, I think, said it right. If you subtract all the computers and the geeks and the goth girls and the nose piercings and the motorcycles and dragon tattoos, what we have at the bottom is a classic Ag Agatha Christie plot. The mm -hmm. island is a sealed room. Uh, and, and in so many ways, I think that's one of the themes that we can we can look at as a parallel to the to you know really any country that has um, a geographic boundary that allows part of of its population to exist in a vacuum, and what that island is is a place where Nazism uh, has never quite left it, where people who are most true to their to their base have never actually progressed beyond you know where they were when they were twenty five. Yeah, uh, and and um, so in in that way, I mean, this story could just as easily have taken place, you know, in in our deep south or on you know uh, in the north or you know the uh, you know Long Island or um, you know any place where you have a group that is that has lived in isolation. Uh, yeah, right. For so long. Yeah, it creates a very interesting uh, interesting. Um, locale for yeah. a tale like this. And I think, you know, um, the uh, comparison to the uh, drawing room mystery is very accurate. And actually, I think um, Christopher Plummer's character even, you know, brings that up at yeah. one point in the film. You know, it's uh, the classic drawing room mystery. The room is the island. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a very um, interesting way to um to frame this story and then i think you know then you throw in a character like lizbeth salander which you know everybody is talking about how unique of a character this is and how you never see a character um or rarely these days do you see a character that people are so drawn to but who is so um you know just anti-social violent um not easy to understand does things that um seem out of out of sorts or out of almost even out of character sometimes but that's you know that is part of the character and everybody is just drawn to this fascinating character and you know I was I was just listening to them talking about it on the Charlie Rose show and you know they're kind of comparing her to this um almost like you know a an a, a a fragile animal almost it's like this this cornered character that you just don't you don't fully understand but there's there's these emotions that you can definitely come through her you know 
The I, I think that's a, a great way to put it. That that sort of cornered animal. What's so interesting about that character is uh, about the character of Salander is that she that that there is almost uh, no sort of emotional uh, uh, arc to her. She just always exists at an emotional high, right at a peak, at which you you're never quite sure. If she is, uh, you know, you, all you know is she's not at rest, but you're never quite sure when she's going to pop. And mm-hmm. and I, I think that's such an interesting, um, you know, it's it's really played so well in the film, particularly the scenes like in the subway when her when her bag gets gets stolen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we haven't talked yet about Rooney Mara, uh, who I, I just almost don't know what to say about her she's just i'm so moved by the performance but the the nuance with which she makes that transition between you know tense kind of just ball of of explosive energy to the explosion where she chases that guy in in and gets her laptop back and, Mm -hmm. and eventually sort of escapes is such a powerful uh moment and yet it is so perfectly executed. Uh, it's not overdone. It is what it is. And you move on. You get to learn that bit about her character and move on uh, that it really stands as a highlight in the film for me. Yeah. And that's that is actually a fantastic scene, because another really interesting thing that um, I think um, Stephen Zalian and David Fincher latch on to is, um, you know, there's a there's a quick shot, uh, actually a couple quick shots of one of the other people on the escalator who sees her race past them and grab this bag from this guy and they kind of go at it on the stairs and this guy like this this viewer um watching what's going on pulls out his cell phone to call the cops and he's just as likely to be calling to report that she's trying to steal his bag rather than him trying to steal her bag right because of the way she looks it's this character that you just you know any other person out there in the world, when they see somebody like her run past them and tackle somebody on an escalator to rip their bag off their shoulders, if they didn't see that he had stolen her bag, they would instantly think she was the one who was the aggressor. Exactly. And yeah, and you don't hear the phone call. You don't know it, what the guy is saying, but it's set up in such a way where, I mean, it almost doesn't matter. It could be one or the other. And it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a really interesting way to, uh, portray um that society's view of her well and that's that's exactly it it's almost it it is equally a commentary on society's view of her as it is uh her and the thief's view of life in this society because it happens and it happens so fluidly that he gets Mm -hmm. off the train he takes the bag he goes up the stairs and moves back into life right Mm -hmm. he slows down and just rides the escalator he is then attacked by her in this vicious uh you know uh lash of energy Mm -hmm. and then it's over and it happens so quickly and then it darts back hops on the subway and she gets on the train and she's done it's over and and her the the only thing that you see in terms of her sort of emotional reaction it's not about being robbed it's not about the being victorious and getting her bag back it's the the absolute uh depression the desolation that comes over her face when she notes that her laptop has been damaged Mm-hmm. And that was that was really powerful. I you know it's interesting that you make this the the comment about sort of her as the um, you know sort of that antihero right? Yeah. 
Uh, and I've I've heard this suggested elsewhere that you know it's that that we're tired of the hero with the the you know that's the thirty something white male with the you know three days stubble on his chin, right, um, right, sort of you know. And this is you know opening directly opposite uh, you know Ghost Protocol uh, with Tom Cruise, who's not maybe not thirty something, but certainly sports the stubble. And uh, but but I I wonder what it is that we find so appealing about her. And I don't think she is necessarily anomalous. I think, you know, if you look at characters like Dexter, um, you know, from the Jeff Lindsay series and then the uh, uh, gosh, is it Showtime Uh, Uh, TV show? Jeff Lindsay wrote the books of the Dexter character. And then I think it's a Showtime uh, Showtime show now in season gosh, going on season six, I think. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's yeah. this this character that it, these are characters, right, that are positioned as the hero and are celebrated by us as the audience because they tap into our very real and most base feelings, the yeah. thoughts that we carry around in our heads that we are terrified to talk about. Well, that, but also I think there is that to her. Now now I'm speaking specifically just of her. There definitely is that to her, but at the same time, there is this real um, fragility to her that um, there's something about her that um, that you can just sense and I mean, they talk about it in the film. A lot has happened to her in the past. Yeah, yeah. She's had a hard life. Um, you know, nothing's been easy. We get little bits and pieces of that in this version. Um, you get a lot more of it in the book and um, um, a little more of it in the Swedish film. But um, there's, you know, a lot of stuff has happened to this girl. And we can really start seeing why she's this way. And it gives us this real sense that um, there's more there but she's really put up these walls and um and um underneath we can see how loyal she is to armonsky and um you know she's you know she's definitely um somebody who has a passion to her you know we see the the club scene and then she brings the um the uh the girl home with her and i um uh i i think there's a lot of um emotion to her particularly um as the film develops and at the end of the film you know it's just it's heartbreaking when lisbeth finally feels like you know she's kind of fallen in love and there's there's more um going on with her and mikhail than uh, she had you know planned and she feels like maybe there's something there and she goes and talks to her um her former guardian uh, um, and tells him, you know, I think I found somebody. And then, you know, you see her, she gets this really expensive jacket for him and everything. And, and, and then she, she goes out to go give it to him and she sees him with, uh, Erica Berger, um, Robin Wright, um, walking away, you know, arms around each other because, you know, he has all these kind of quirky relationships and, and her heart is just broken. And you see that in her face as she's looking and, no matter how um, anti-heroic or dark or um, you know just scary or whatever it is that that she may seem, 
that moment in the film, I mean, if the audience isn't with her 100% and just like having their heart broken as she sees that, I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's a brutal, brutal scene to watch. And it's a tragic ending to the film. Well, and that's what I mean uh, by, by what makes her the character. So s someone who, in spite of what she, how she looks, that we all relate to, because deep down, uh, you know, I, I wonder just how many of us, uh, when we, we talk about sort of our base impression of ourselves, aren't wearing leather jackets and have, you know, and, and have tattoos and piercings uh, because we, you know, that's who we are in our own heads, mm -hmm. you know, but, but we live in this sort of fear that we cannot do these things. That society, a societal pressure has said we cannot do those things. And the reason that she is such a powerful character is in spite of everything she has been through. As, as a young girl, uh, she continues to be abused by the system, quite literally by representatives of the system. And yet she is somebody who has conquered uh, her the fear of societal pressure and has taken back that power. And she then literally takes back the power in uh you know in throughout the course of of the film and i think that's what makes her so powerful yeah uh is is she has conquered that fear and takes back power in a in a you know over every system that tries to to exert power upon her and that's what we really relate to i find that yeah. fascinating it is fascinating it really is and it's it it does get frustrating um you know in the second and third books when you can see people trying to help her and trying to you know people from the system who now are actually trying to help her and make things right and she's so frustrated with the system and she's just so done with it all that she you basically tells them all you know you know she doesn't want their help you know it's it's it, it it gets very frustrating when people are actually now finally coming to her saying we want to help you and she doesn't want their help right i i i actually just cracked open the book uh, uh you know right after i saw the movie i came back and i i uh, popped it on the kindle and and started reading the second book the uh, girl who played with fire and it's wow uh, starts off with something of a bang. Unlike the first book, Dragon Tattoo, man, the first hundred pages was a snoozer. <laughs> I you know, can't that, remember. Well, that, yeah. Well, I that guess goes it does, to it does take a little bit. It, yeah. I mean, it's like it, it's it's like the very worst of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, they might as well have filled Dragon Tattoo with singing dwarves, <laughs> uh, because it's all a, a litany of family history, and then of corporate, you know, of the corporate uh, background and financial stuff, and I, and you know, it's all good background. But one of the things that I think Fincher did so well was make research sexy. Yeah, and I mean, you know, they really there. That is very um, much a part of the book. There's so much research going on. Well, I mean, yeah, very much a part. You could not make the movie without figuring out a way to play research dramatically. Yeah. You couldn't do it. The, um, you know, it's an, it's an interesting thing to comment on because um, another series of films that um, was made that actually involved a lot of research also um, was the... Um, um, I'm going to the Da Vinci code and uh, right. angels and demons. That was another um, series of books where they talked about how interesting it would be to try to translate that because there's so much research and there's so much, 
you know, of, of that character uh, working on computers and all this stuff. And, and people, you know, I think laughed a little bit at some of the moments in the films when, you know, Tom Hanks is just like, quick, I've got to get to a library. And you know, it sounded a little, <laughs> but it that's sounded, exactly how it played in the book. That's exactly yeah, well, right. how it played. <laughs> right. But, but in these films, you're right. It, it comes across in a really, uh, a really uh, fluid way where the research just kind of, um, instead of just being research, and this is something I think he did a lot better than, than the Swedish version. Um, as your, as he's learning research or as Lisbeth is learning research, which I, uh, you know, whoever it is, who's actually researching, we're getting, you know, flashbacks to moments that they're seeing flashbacks of moments on the bridge, mm -hmm. flashbacks of, um, you know, young Harriet as she's um, on the uh, at the parade. We're getting a lot of really interesting things, and I loved what they did with um, Harriet, um, her voice reading the Bible verses that yeah. they were saying. You know, it's just I don't know something about her voice and just you know that just had this real haunting presence to it. And when we'd hear her reading those Bible verses, it was quite haunting. I felt. I, I'm. I'm interested, and I'm not not to go down the road of a spoiler, but I kept trying to to think back because I I did not know that one of the significant changes between the book and this version of the film, and I don't know how the the Swedish version of the film plays this particular element is the end of the book, yeah, and the big reveal, right, um, which is a big change, which is a significant change, and uh, and and. Uh, as I walked out of, the, out of the theater, I kept thinking back to those voices of of Harriet reading the Bible verses. Hmm. Was that Jolie Richardson? I don't think so. I don't think it was. You think I, it was I another younger-sounding actress? Well, I think it was the young girl that they had play Harriet. Being Harriet, okay. Um, you know, in, in, the, all, the in images. all the flashback scenes. I mean, that's what I assumed. I, I don't think we ever really hear any of those flashback characters speak other than very um muted yeah. as we hear other things going on um and just you know a quick aside you know what an interesting role for julian sands to take you know it's like the the young christopher Plummer character it's like i don't i don't know what julian sands has been up to these days but to see him pop up as a uh as a flashback character who who never you never really hear speaking i was like that's a that's a pretty interesting role to kind of take no kidding yeah. uh a guy that we really haven't seen in in a number of years like what has he been up to uh, yeah i don't think he's been up to a whole lot not much um, but um yeah but the flashbacks you know i think were done really interestingly and i i i actually liked what they did with the change at the ending with um, oh yeah, no. I mean, I it, it's what really interested me with that. I, I didn't actually notice. It has been you know, it's been several years since I read the book, and the movie played that change so well mm -hmm. that I actually had to go back and and uh, read the last chapter of the book to to remember what or not the last chapter, but uh, you know, before the prologue, uh, right, you know, right. during the big reveal to catch what what actually happened because it was not. Uh, it, it was a significant uh, alteration. I feel like we're it, sort of dancing around it to avoid the big spoiler, but you know, I, I don't think it would make sense because we haven't really talked about the plot. 
it it wouldn't make sense, but it's definitely a change with the uh, with the character and obviously what he's trying to find um, over the course of the story. You know, it's a um, the interesting thing is um, about it is it's still um, in both films and in the book. Honestly, um, it's such a strange story because it kind of. In in every version, you conclude the murder mystery long before the end of the story. <laughs> right. You know, you, in, in every case, you still have um, a lot to talk about. And um, I think the Swedish film, for me, after um, he solves the mystery, felt the longest. Like, I, I think it felt like there was a lot more going on after that if as i recall well as as there frankly as there was in the book i mean the you know the the big murder mystery reveal happens you know really there's a lot left in the end of the at the end of the book i mean especially in terms of salander's you know efforts with the you know when a wenestrom yeah the whole venestrom affair that that whole thing um there was a lot of resolution to be had yeah, and, and I guess, you know, that whole Venestrom case is the very first thing that we hear about in the story, right. or in the films, I think in both films. Um, you know, it's it's Mikhail being sentenced for libel um, in the Venestrom case. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we still definitely have to wrap that up in in the film. We also have to wrap up the relationship story between uh, Mikhail and, and, uh, Salander and, um, it, it, it takes a while. It does take a while. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's really any other way to have wrapped it up, unfortunately. But um, even I, but that's, that's what I'm, that's what sort of, I walked away with saying that, that the pacing of this movie, and I think there was another key element I want to talk about, which is the, the merging of their storylines in the beginning of the film. But at the end of the film, it did not feel jarring to me. It didn't feel like it, it, it felt absolutely appropriate. And uh, in so many ways, the way he, they, they played uh, Salander's efforts to, to resolve the the Venextrum affair in favor of resolving their relationship issues, right? I mean, in mm-hmm. so many ways, her you know efforts directly supported those last two scenes where you know she met him outside the um, you know outside the offices, and then later after she got the jacket and went to see and, and saw him with Erica, you know th- that all played so well. It was like a beautiful warm bow. On, yeah. on the rest of the story i didn't feel like it was like it was out of place at all you know i didn't either it was it's kind of like you know lord of the rings stories where you know a lot of people complained about oh there's so many endings to the to that uh, return of the king but you know they all had their place and i i, I personally didn't feel uh, it didn't bother me and it was kind of the same with this it um all of those little things needed to be wrapped up and and um you know, I I, uh, I didn't mind watching that another twenty minutes to kind of tie all that up, and I, I felt it was um, the film had been done so well that investing the extra time to finish those stories was not a problem. Okay, I I I've got a couple more things I want to ask you about. Okay, the first one. 
well, okay, while we're talking about plot stuff, uh, it, how do you feel about the way they merged the two stories, the Salander story and the um, Blomquist story uh, in the beginning of the film? Because in the book, there is a significant portion of the book that where these two characters are apart. Right. And, and you think they're different movies for the longest time, or certainly different books for the longest time. Definitely, and I think this was. I mean, it it read as a challenge to me. What was your take? Um, I thought it was uh, incredibly well done. Incredibly well done. The um, yeah, the book. I mean, it's not quite as as uh, separated as Lord of the Rings, where it's like literally you spend the first half of the book with you know Frodo and Sam. And then the second half of the book, you're following Aragorn and uh, and his guys as they go, you know, on their separate tale. It's not quite that separated, but definitely in the book, it's like, okay, here's um, Mikhail's story. And then you go and you follow her for a while. And you kind of jump back and forth until they finally come together. The way that, um, and I haven't looked at the script. I don't know if a lot of that came from uh, Zalian and how he actually wrote the script or if it came from the editing that, um, you know, Kirk Baxter and, and Angus, uh, wall did in the film, um, the way that they cut it together. I don't know, but it was so good. I mean, that's one thing that I, I said to my wife when it was done, I'm like, man, I mean, they took this, I don't know how, I can't remember how many pages the book was five or 600 pages. Yeah. They found to me the perfect way to condense scenes, to to have scenes jumping back and forth, to tell the story, um, so f just so quickly. I mean, man, I swear there were some scenes in this that were no more than like fifteen seconds of screen time. You know, just like very short scenes where we just we have we get in, we get the information from the scene, and we get out. And, you know, we're just moving from character to character. We're getting all the information we need. And it just, it worked really well. Absolutely. I, I noted the same thing. Just the way this film was cut together as a film that is so heavily based on the drama, right? On, on just talking. It was cut together like an action film, particularly in the first 35 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it was very powerful. Now, the other thing that I really was, was struck by, and I still don't know how this sits with me, the opening credits. <laughs> they i mean gorgeous it's that was yeah. stunning film work in the opening credits frighteningly gorgeous right it was it was very disturbing it's it's it basically it it harkened back for me to the days when david fincher um was directing music videos for trent reznor and nine inch nails right. i mean it really had that sort of music video feel i don't think um, that David Fincher actually directed that bit. I think one of his um, his guys who does his titles, I think, did that for him. But man, if that doesn't set the tone for what we're about to see, um, it is pretty trippy. I mean, I read one comparison. I can't remember where where they said it felt like a um, you know a James Bond opening for kind of like a a strange you know bondage. Um, you know, S and M sort of exactly tale. It's it really has that feel where you've got the 
the the woman's body and and this kind of liquid black uh, leather or not leather but you know whatever it looks like yeah like liquid latex kind of yeah a, exactly where it's just kind of like being pouring poured over, over shapes yeah, and, and bodies and and burning birds and uh like crazy computer wires shooting out and like sticking into people's faces and i mean it was a really really trippy opening uh it, done to uh, uh Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song, a remake. Yeah, uh, performed by Karen O Karen from o. the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, right. so, uh, Yeah. Right, which uh, was, you know, another interesting one, Kurt Reznor's, you know, comment that he didn't, you know, obviously he didn't write the, the title sequence, and he just, uh, you know, you, sometimes he says, you just got to let go, because Fincher's a guy who knows what he wants, and he doesn't just come up with these things uh, out of thin air. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even Trent Reznor says, and this is Trent Reznor who reports spending 14 months uh, working on this score. Uh, you know, I, David Fincher, I was just listening to him, um, like I said, on the Charlie Rose show, talking about the music. Um, I was I was listening to the soundtrack earlier today, and mm -hmm. it's a really haunting score. It's not one that you probably would put in too often to l just listen to on its own. It works really well in the film. Um, but Fincher was saying it's uh, one thing that they were really trying to do with the music. They were trying to um, get across that sense of cold and just that iciness that you have in Sweden, that, you know, this cold and this silence that permeates everything. And I, I think it really came through. It absolutely came through. There's another piece that that stuck out to me, and and uh, this is one that that relates to just the overall sound design, and and I think probably one of the reasons that they they worked for 14 months uh, on the the score itself is that this score, more than any I've seen in recent history, is as part of the fabric of the film's audio. Uh, as any I have seen. I mean, when you look at the ambient sounds of the film that are, are where the music is actually tuned to the same key as machines in the film, uh, to make those those transitions, the sort of the audio transitions, serve as just as powerful as the visual transitions. In, in yeah, uh, that I mean, this is this is an intricately and intimately. Um, tied score to the general audio of the film and it's it's worth noting that as you're watching it as it just sort of washes over you that the, that they have they have really it's more than just how can we put a, a 15 second beat into this scene to make this transition it's the audio is going to serve as much as every sound effect and foley effect that we can put into this film yeah it was exactly. really powerful yeah this the audio was just stunning um all the way through everything i'm not quite sure I, I actually didn't look yet to see who did the audio if it was i think it was ren kleiss who did the yeah, audio it in is social network and and so it's yeah same thing here i mean he's just um it really does a stellar stellar job um and you know since we've talked about the um the audio i think it's uh we should definitely mention the uh the look of the film and um, how much that mirrors and ties into that same feel that the audio has. And I think Jeff Cronenweth's cinematography. 
um, cinematography is just um, God. It's just thing. It's 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 this. It really captures the cold iciness of everything in this world, not just of Sweden, but the world of of this uh, this murder mystery and these people tied up in it. How do it's, they? How uh, it's do they, really a beautiful film. How do they do that? It seems like everything is. It's almost just a little bit blue on the white balance, and just a little bit. What is that? Overexposed. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, not I'm not sure how to how to describe it. Yeah, and I, you know, I haven't quite looked into exactly what it was that he was doing. I know that Jeff Cronenworth is is somebody who um, really likes to play with the darks in film. That you know, the stuff that you can get out of that. Um, I also think that they tend to um, put a lot of, uh, which kind of doesn't uh, may not make sense to a lot of people, but but put in a lot of light when they're lighting the sets so that they can actually um, get a shallower depth of field, and they really he he really does this thing where. The depth of field is so narrow in in many cases where the, even on somebody's face you're you know there's only a very thin strip of what's actually in focus on the face and it's um you really have to know how to how to work with your depth of field and with your lighting and all of your tools in order to really make that happen and that may be why it does look a little a little um you know um you know over exposed in some areas yeah, it, you know, and almost as much as the as those as that shallow depth of field, I think you're exactly right. It's bringing me back to just some of the Rooney Mara close-ups where you see, you know, where she's really struggling, and you see, you know, her eyelash is out of focus to her eyeball. I mean, mm -hmm. there are some incredibly nuanced uh, 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 close-ups in this film, and at the same sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, the landscapes that they get of Sweden and of Hedestad Island are are you know just barren and haunting from the very outset mm -hmm. uh, the, yeah. the grays that they capture in this film are really a, a fantastic yeah i mean you really feel the cold you do i think really they really the pulled that off yeah um goodness i don't have anything else on my list i really wanted to ask you about i feel like have have we what else do you have uh, you know something um we here's something we haven't mentioned at all um this is going to be the the first film of our David Fincher. I'm calling it the Fincher Fest. <laughs> uh, we're going to basically look at all of Fincher's films. This is the Benjamin Button Fincher Fest of movies we yes, like. Yes, yes, exactly. We're starting uh, uh, at his most recent and going to his earliest. Um, although I think with Alien Three, we may actually pull out and put into the uh, Alien to the Alien Fest. The Alien Fest, right? But. Um, so as as we go backward and we watch his films, we'll talk more about this with um, um, Social Network, Benjamin Button, mm -hmm. Zodiac. Um, these are all films that um, I, I think starting with Zodiac, really where it's like all digital filmmaking. And, oh, that's really good. I'm glad you brought that up. Keep going. And I, th and I think that... Um, the uh, Fincher once said in an interview, I'll just read this quote here. Dailies almost daily is, you know, kind of the footage that you shot that day. And they always like to go look at it to see what they, uh, what they caught. 
um, in the film days, you weren't able to actually, you know, look at it right away. You had to send it off, get it developed. And um, so here's his comment. Dailies almost always end up being disappointing, like the veil is pierced and you look at it for the first time and think, oh my God, this is what I really have to work with. But when you can see what you have as it's gathered, it can be a much less neurotic process. So what, I mean, what he's saying here is with these digital cameras, they're basically able instantly to see what it is they're getting. You know, they can be cutting it while they're getting it. And, and really they can um, be, be pulling all of the exact things that they want. And, and his editors, um, Kirk and Angus, have, have talked about this before where, I mean, it's not just getting the best take. For, they'll, they'll look at all the best takes, but then they look at all the best ways that a certain sentence was said. And then they look at all the best ways that a certain word was said, almost to the point where they're looking at like, how a certain syllable was said or how a certain frame was, you know, how somebody's eye moves in a certain frame. And they actually can get that detailed now where they can kind of pull all the, all of these different pieces together and they can almost create exactly the movie that they, they, um, they set out to make. And so it's it's a very interesting thing, and um, I think David Fincher said it uh, about this particular film. This was essentially exactly the film that they set out to make. Hmm. So you know, I think there's a lot to be said for what you can do with digital filmmaking now, and how um, just just in these last few years since they started really making all digital films and being able to kind of use the tools to that uh, extent. It, you know, real, yeah. real filmmakers who can, who can, you know, who really want to make make it exactly what they set out to make, are going to take those tools and they're going to be able to use them in such a way as you will end up getting pretty much what they're trying to get done. I'm trying to think who else says it that I because you know uh, uh, Fincher has, was, if I remember correctly, he was one of the pioneers really of of you know moving quickly to digital. Uh, you know, even before some of the technology had really cemented, and and that has happened fairly recently, uh, in in terms of just the overall sort of timeline of filmmaking. Uh, but there are some others who really took to digital early. I think, uh, you know, was it the Cohen brothers or the Wachowskis? Uh, one of the brothers. Gosh, you know, I'm not sure about those guys. I know um, the Cohen brothers really took to the. Um, what you could do with uh, with non-linear and coloring and well, non-linear coloring, editing. yeah, and how you could do that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, George Lucas obviously yeah. has been kind of um, pro but, digital filmmaking. I sort of didn't want to say him. <laughs> Michael Mann actually, um, I he shot Collateral entirely digitally um, on the Vipers. I right, mean, back right. In, uh, uh, whenever that film came out, two thousand four, yeah. five, somewhere around there. Um, it's, it's definitely something where it has its followers. And I think there's some filmmakers who are still trying to stick with film as long as they can. But I think, I think we're almost at a point now where, um, you know, now that Kodak has, I believe, uh, declared bankruptcy, I think pretty much, um, digital is going to be it. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I, I actually uh, met the f photographer, heard uh, him speak, the last uh, still photographer, you know, that's what I do most of 
most of my time is mm-hmm. shooting still now. And his name is Steve McCurry. He actually shot the last role of Kodachrome film. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And to hear him talk about it, it took him a year to shoot it. He had loaded it in this old in this old camera and and uh you know, he had moved exclusively to digital some years back and and so he just carried around this old camera and just would find just the right image and ended up shooting his last frame in India. Uh, and really marks the end of an era. And so you, you know, you think about, I, I think about Steve McCurry in this case, you know, I think about, you know, here was a legendary National Geographic photographer. He's the one who shot the Afghan girl, you know, the, the mm, legend. Yep. That was McCurry's work and, wow. and, and has documented the, you know, the globe. Who is going to shoot the last film on film? When will yeah. we no longer be able to really call it film and mean media? Right. Uh, that's that's an interesting transition, and that will be an interesting uh, little note, you know, to to say, oh, that was the last film shot on film. Right. It'll really kind of be sad, and and just talking about that kind of makes kind of breaks my heart a little bit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we'll hold a moment of silence, or let Skype do that for us. <laughs> Uh, you know, we also didn't talk about, uh, just the, the individual, some of the individual performances in this film, which I think is, is worth at least noting, uh, it's a little bit early for, um, award season, uh, although the Golden Globe nominations are out and Rooney Mara has, uh, is, uh, has gotten a best, uh, performance by an actress in a, uh, dramatic film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Along with, uh, you know, <laughs> Glenn Close, Meryl Streep, Tilda Swinton, Viola Davis. Yeah, right, right. It's, for for essentially, you know, her first like real lead role yeah. of a of a real film. Can you imagine uh, the Cinderella wow. story for this girl? I mean, Rooney uh, Mara. She was I, I uh, maybe part of why I am so stunned by this by her performance in this movie is that the only thing I know her from is the first seven minutes of The Social Network. Yeah, in I think she, she was in. She she was in like uh, the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street and yeah. maybe some other sort of remake like that. But yeah, not she's much. she's got she's got you know in terms of of screen cred, she's got a, a pretty short history, and yet she crushes in this movie. She mm. crushes. I uh, you know I thought she was absolutely fantastic. She's just stunning to watch. You put a, a you know you put a hoodie on her and a and a nose ring, and she's a fifteen year old angst ridden punker i mean it was unbelievable transformation the other was daniel craig how did you just you know 30 seconds or less how did you feel about daniel craig and what he brought to this movie you know i thought he was so great i was a little um i wasn't sure about him initially i was like "Mm, okay i mean i I really enjoy him as an actor and i think he can do a lot i I thought he ended up doing a really great job bringing a non-james bond sense to this character where he was uh, stumbling down hills and and just you know a little more not prepared for the violence that was what that was going to be coming. I absolutely agree, and I I feel like there are, I I've read so many reviews of this film that that talk specifically about uh, Craig's performance as oh well it's James Bond as a clumsy reporter. Oh. I did not feel I think that's absolutely uh you know downplaying what was you know perhaps one of his strongest performances. I thought he did a great job out of uh sort of his that character and i thought he was great he looks good getting beaten up mm-hmm. i think that actually may be one of his strongest kind of attributes as an actor is is letting himself be vulnerable physically quite physically 
Yeah. Uh, and he, he's, he did a great job in this movie, just being sort of confused. Yeah, he was, he was great. I really loved him in this film. He was great. I mean, everybody. I mean, we should just, you know, give our shout outs yeah. here. I mean, Christopher Plummer, you'll never go wrong with him. No. I mean, just... I mean that's why you don't need to say his name. He's always brilliant. <laughs> he is. Um, Robin Wright. You know, if there's any, and if there's ever an actress who can have a very small role, but just carry so much weight into that role. Ugh. It's her. I mean, this and Moneyball. I mean, her what one scene maybe in Moneyball, maybe two. Right. I mean, she, there was so much to that character. I'm like, God, she really just knows. I mean, Stephen's alien again, um, writing the characters. But I mean, she just really carries a lot of weight. Um, Stellan Skarsgård is fantastic as Martin Banger. Um, really creepy oh really creepy he's gonna Stellan Starsgard. i mean he's got a, a fantastic uh cv and and i think he's one of the he's one of the legendary players that's that we're going to be talking about uh, in terms of character actors uh you know i think he's got a place in history a very interesting um trivia note um side note um i'm not sure if you've you've seen the the posters for uh, girl with the dragon tattoo that are out there and the little um um the phrases that they have on them uh i can't find either of them right now of course um but stellan skarsgård who is actually swedish he actually oh here they are evil shall with evil be expelled and the other what is hidden in snow comes forth in the thaw um they're both swedish proverbs and he told them to David Fincher during the filming and Fincher liked them so much and he thought they fit the story so well, he actually uh, decided to employ them as the taglines for the film. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great, that's little, fantastic. great little side note, yeah. Uh, uh, the one other point that just came up to me as soon as we started talking about Stellan Skarsgård being Swedish, uh, it, one of the things I thought they they dealt with really interesting I, I think it's interesting they even dealt with it is atheism in this film hmm it was interesting and it was um it played nicely with the um uh, christian beliefs um that also come up in the film well uh, what i think what's so interesting about it is uh just you know being an uh a, a sort of a hollywood film insofar as it is Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure that they necessarily needed to bring it up, and yet uh, it it really I I'm I wonder if people actually sort of are aware of it. But you know, Swedish uh, Sweden is is one of the most atheist countries on the planet. I mean, I, I it's uh, you know twenty percent uh, of the country actually believes in God in Sweden. Uh, wow, I and, actually had no idea. That's yeah, interesting. And and so uh, you know that is, um, uh, you know, as opposed to kind of, uh, and I actually don't know where the United States actually uh, fares on that list. But but you know, you get into kind of the the turkeys of the world, and that's up into the nineties, ninety percent. And so I, I find that interesting that that is played in this. Uh, in this film, as much as it is uh, his relationship with his daughter, that is the the Michael Blomquist uh, character with his daughter, who was off to Bible camp, and they actually, you know, make an you know make a, a, a sort of a, a character issue with that 
with atheism. Yeah. It was nice. It was nice to see... Um, a major just, property dealing with it. Yeah. It's just something where they bring it up. It's not... It's not what the story's about, but it's something that's there. Yeah. People acknowledge it, and uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think they did it pretty nicely, actually. I the more we talk about it, the more I love this movie. I want to go see it again. This is going to be one one of my favorite films. I really enjoyed how they put this film together. Yeah, it was it was a, uh, a very very solid film, and I think any of the accolades that it. Uh, gets um whether just mentions or actual wins or even just the praise or you know however much it makes i i think it's probably um worth saying that it deserves it it's just a very uh, a very well-made film all around yeah so we are as you mentioned we're on our uh, fincher kick next week we are gonna uh jump back into uh, the social network which is uh, i think a uh, it should be an interesting conversation since it's essentially the exact same team that put together this movie. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, all these people, Jeff Cronenweth, uh, you know, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, Kirk Baxter, Kirk Baxter Angus Baxter. Wall, yeah. Scott Rudin produced. Yeah, uh, Sean Chafin, his, uh, his you know, I, I don't think she's his, uh, David Fincher's wife, but his partner, I don't know if they've just never married or what. Mm. Um a lot of his team kind of follow have been following him and yeah. and uh yeah so we'll be talking about the same the same bunch i uh, i very much look forward to it another terrific film uh next week and i think that's all we've got yeah i think uh i think we uh we covered this one pretty well Marathon. and uh yeah here we go let's uh let's let's plow through fincher i don't like how you said that it just seemed, <laughs> it just seemed mean <laughs> yeah, it, it it didn't come across very well. I take it back. Let's <laughs> let's let's delve into. Uh, I don't know. You've There's derailed. Nothing. You have totally derailed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>